Bonnie, Linda, and Harriet, as always. And if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 18. If you do not have your Bibles, it'll be behind me on the screen for us to go over together. Um, Alrighty. So thus far in uh, Genesis, though, Genesis chapter 17, the one we just went over, is probably one of the most important chapters, um, some would say in the Bible, because from that promise and from that potential blessing comes the people of God, and from the people of God comes our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Um, Through Abraham and Sarah come the promised one, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Um, So a lot of people consider Genesis 17 to be kind of the pivotal moment in Abraham's life, and then um, from there it starts to go in a different direction. And that's what we're going to see now today. Um, So let's go ahead and start off with Genesis 1 through 8, or 18, 1 through 8, um, and see what we find. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourself, and after you may pass on, since you have come to your servant." So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three says of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he cut, took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Um, all right, so as we turn to Genesis 18... We find the text informing us that the Lord appears to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. As we recall, this is the place where Abraham had settled previously in Genesis. And it appears he had continued to dwell in this area for the duration of time between his, um, his uh, defeating of the kings who took Lot and now. We also find the circumstances of the Lord's visit to Abraham in that it was as Abraham was resting during the heat of the day. Or as we might call today, he was having a siesta. He was just resting after working in the morning. At this point, we're unsure exactly what is happening in Abraham's mind. If Abraham was napping and awoke and then saw these men, uh, he would have felt embarrassed since hospitality was a normal practice during a time period. Or it could be that he simply, they simply appeared in a blink of an eye. We're simply not sure. That Abraham had to run to meet them implies that Uh, He thought he missed seeing them from a distance, however. Some might think that his actions imply that he knew that it was God at at this moment. Uh, But the truth is, again, such hospitality, it was a common practice during the time period. Thus, offering food and drink to travelers and guests who might be weary was considered a good and right practice. Abraham, in the text, does not expect the individuals to remain. Instead, he expects them to be blessed by him and then continue on their way. Their response is rather curt. Um, do what you say. Just do as you say. They are receiving hospitality, and as the common practice was to accept it rather than to reject it. So Abraham makes a quick dash into the tent and has Sarah prepare cakes for the guests. While she is making the cakes, he runs off uh, to take a calf, as the text says, tender and good, that is a good calf, and had a young man prepared. Essentially, Abraham is going to make a feast for his guests. 
We also may notice that he is giving them uh, some of the best rather than anything less. He started off with saying, have some water and have a morsel. He's preparing a full meal for these individuals. So after the meal has been prepared, he set it before them. We notice how he stood by them under the tree while they ate. He did not partake of the food. Instead, standing quietly at their side while they ate. Again, hospitality is being seen as Abraham blesses these individuals. Now again, the question of whether or not Abraham knows who these individuals are, it's much debated at this point in the story. It seems likely that Abraham at this point is unaware, and instead we are seeing his genuine practice of hospitality and blessing of others. But regardless if he knew immediately or not, does not change what happens next. And so we come to verses 9 through 15. Um, They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about the time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. So at this point, If Abraham did not know who these individuals were when he first saw them, he certainly does now. We notice how it is they who said to him, where is Sarah your wife? In order for them to know who Sarah is, it required them to have either met her at one point in the past or had his supernatural gifts of knowledge. Uh, This seems to be the likelier point of the story, however, since it's reminiscent of Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? God knows where they are, but he still says it. Um, Cain and Abel, where is your brother? He already knows where his brother is. And even Hagar, where are you going? And and knowing her name, Hagar. In all of these cases, the one asking the question, that is God, already knows more than what is presumed. As for Abraham, he answers honestly. Now, what is interesting at this point, and maybe some of you have already seen, is how the text goes from plural to individual um, or singular. In particular, it is they who ask where Sarah is, but it is the Lord alone who reminds Abraham of the promise. The promise is that Sarah will have a child. That the Lord promises to return and Sarah will have a son is a reminder that God's hand is at work in progeny um, as it is a blessing from God. While this conversation is happening outside the tent, Sarah is somewhat eavesdropping. Maybe it was because of the way her husband had been running around, or maybe it was because she generally was interested in the visitors. Who can say? Maybe it was a common practice for her to eavesdrop. I don't know. Um, All we know is that she was listening behind the door as the conversation is occurring. Now, when she heard, however, what the Lord said, her response is similar to that as Abraham in the previous chapter. The text, however, specifically states how she laughed to herself. Thus, she isn't laughing out loud or making any noise. This is like an inner chuckle, like a trying to stifle a laugh because of um, what's being said. But why does she have such a reaction? Because she knows her circumstances. She's old. Indeed, she even says to herself, I'm worn out. My Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure now? 
This desire to have an heir has been with her for 90 years. And for 90 years, there has been nothing to imply that she would, in fact, have a child. Now, in the midst of this conversation, she is to believe that she will, in fact, bear a child. After how old Abraham is, being 100, he will have another child. To her, it seemed preposterous. Now, if the hint given earlier how the individuals knew Sarah's name and the authority by which the particular individual the Lord spoke now comes to the clincher, um, he responds with, why did Sarah laugh and say? The text again said that she did all this in her head. She did this all to herself. She wasn't speaking audibly. How is it that the individual knew about Sarah's thoughts? How did this individual know that Sarah was feeling the way that she was about the situation? The only conclusion is that it was God. Thus, the text makes it implicit that this is occurring. From this, the Lord, the individual speaking, returns to the main point. Sarah will indeed bear a son. There is nothing more to be said or done. God has declared it, and so it will be. For Sarah's part, she acts similarly to Adam and Eve when they are found out. She denies it. I didn't laugh. It wasn't me. And, you know, and truthfully, in her mind, she might very well believe this. She did not audibly laugh. Or say anything. Um, but a self-mirth over the situation was still very real. Likewise, we find her doing the same thing as Abraham in the previous chapter. In her denial of laughing, she actually utters the name Isaac. Which means to laugh. But as it is, God won't let her get away that easily. He simply informs her that he knows her better than that. She did laugh. Um, she can't fool God. All right. So the main point of these verses are to begin the next story arc in Abraham's narrative. In it, we find Abraham showing hospitality, which was a common practice of the day toward these individuals. We're unsure exactly if he knows who these individuals are, but regardless, we see him seeking to bless them. Once the three eat, we find them then asking things that they should not know, giving Abraham and Sarah the confirmation of who they are. In the end, the promise given to Sarah is reaffirmed. The name Isaac, which Sarah utters when she denies laughing, um, and we are reminded ultimately of the power of God in this story. All right. So the first application that we could get from this um, is just how hospitable Abraham was when it comes to the guests. Indeed, we're not sure if Abraham knows who these individuals are at first, but regardless of this, it still sets a precedent which actually continues on into the law, the prophets, and the New Testament. And that is practicing hospitality is a good thing. And when it comes to America, it is interesting to consider how different we are in the West compared to other places. Indeed, even today, hospitality is considered an important facet of various cultures. To be hospitable towards those um, others is a given. So what is it with our own culture which tends us to shy away from hospitality and toward isolationism and individualism? Well, I expect it has to do with the information age itself. The more we learn, the more we see how dangerous the world is and can be. We hear stories of atrocities that happen to individuals, and because of that, we begin to doubt other people's intentions. Indeed, that hitchhiker is certainly... An axe murderer. I can't pick them up. Tell me you haven't thought it. That homeless person is certainly a thief or a drug addict. I can't give them anything. The person who was born after 1986 is certainly a mooch. I can't help them in their distress. 
I was born in 1986, that's why I said after. <laughs> now, why do we believe such things? Because we have heard of them happening before. Because we have very real fears which at times inhibit our understanding of the world and cause us to make predetermined judgments on individuals. Are all of those judgments accurate? I would say no. But because there is a chance of it being true, or because we believe there is a chance, we choose not to show hospitality because of it. We prefer not to bless individuals because we are scared to death of what they will do with that blessing. Now the problem with this is that it kind of goes against what we mainly know about Jesus. Simply put, Jesus was very hospitable toward others. Usually those who were lowest in society were most welcomed by him. Children, for example, while being important for the future during their lives as children, they were considered the neediest and most fragile in society, most kind of in a way neglected too sometimes. Yet Christ invites them over to himself. Those who were possessed by demons, Jesus casts out the demons. Those who were ill, Christ healed. Those who were blind, he caused them to see. And notice how not every time he did things for others did it turn out to them following him. Indeed, consider the one when the ten lepers are healed and they're called to go to the temple. Only one of them comes back. Does that mean that Jesus was hospitable towards everyone? No. He did have a choice in the matter. He was not always hospitable towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, he wasn't always hospitable toward the people in general. There were times when he didn't heal. There were times when he argued. There were times when he whipped people out of temples. The temple. But what do we notice? We notice that Jesus doesn't discriminate based upon a person's race or social status. For the Samaritan woman at the well, he was a prophet, her prophet, who spoke the truth of God to her. Whereas others would have ignored her, he spoke to her. When it comes to social status, it didn't matter if you were rich or poor. Christ would be willing to dialogue and even help depending on the circumstances. So what's the point in this? Are we supposed to be hospitable or not? Well, the answer is yes. Um, The point is this. We are to be hospitable people. Consider what Paul says in Romans. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In this text, Paul is speaking specifically about fellow Christians. That is, we are to show um, hospitality toward one another especially. This is true not only when it comes to visiting one another at each other's houses, or having tea together, or talking on the phone, or praying for one another. In some sense, these are all characteristic of hospitality that we show one another. These things are good. Peter further establishes it when he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one uh, who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, we find this call to be hospitable, to show hospitality. Like what we find 
from Paul in Romans, it coincides with how we relate to one another as Christians. We shouldn't grumble or be annoyed with hospitality, but instead recognize it as being a way to glorify God through blessing one another. That's the goal of hospitality, to bless. Now, there are two more instances in the New Testament concerning hospitality. Um, One of those is found in Titus 1, where Paul writes, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, not everyone is an overseer. For us, most consider this role of overseer to be the role of the pastor. Uh, So the question is, do you, when you enter into this place and this space, do you sense hospitality from me? Uh, All the things in this list are significant. Indeed, they show what a pastor's character should look like. And when you look up, is my pastor doing what he ought in the Bible? It's here. (laughs) Um, So, you know, start critiquing me now. But... But we notice, too, it's, it's as God's steward. It's implying this space. It's implying when we get together. And one of the goals of the pastor is to help make this a hospitable place, to show hospitality here in this congregation, so that when you come in here on Sunday mornings, you sense that peace, that kindness, that sense of belonging and love. This example is set here, in this place of sanctuary, and then it should lead us to each other apart from Sunday, and then further outward to others. Thus, our goal for this space should be hospitality toward one another and those who come into it. Now, the final aspect of hospitality comes from Hebrews 13. Um, There, the author of Hebrews says something which seems to tie in what we read today, actually. Whoever it is, I'm not going to say who, who wrote it. Um, They write, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Some believe that this reflects back onto the narrative with Abraham. Abraham simply practicing the hospitality which was norm at the time might not have known who he was entertaining, who he was being hospitable to. The point is that angels, they do exist. They exist to glorify God. Not everyone who is a believer will encounter an angel in this particular way, but there are cases when it is the case. Now, as such, we want to be careful. It is not as though we entertain and are hospitable towards others uh, just in case someone is an angel. Instead, the purpose is to show brotherly love. That is the focus. Let's not get sidetracked by the possibilities. Instead, focus on the reason, which is brotherly love. So in all of this, we can be sure of three things. The first is that here in this sanctuary, this place, it is good and right for us to practice hospitality toward one another and to others. This is to be the place where kindness and love are prevalent and where we are to bless and be blessed by one another. The second is that the experiences here should overflow to each other as individuals that we should be individually seeking to be hospitable toward one another. Finally, that we are to be hospitable towards others, knowing that just as Christ was hospitable, so we are to be as well. So be encouraged, then, to practice this here amongst each other and throughout the week. Hospitality does not need to be a lost art. Instead, let's bring it back, and let's 
practice that which blesses others, knowing it, places our God, it pleases our God to bless those around us. Alrighty, so this leads to the second point. I didn't really know how to uh, title this point, so I just went with, with God. I think it'll make sense, I don't know. So previously in Genesis, we learned how God is called El Shaddai. In this, it means that God is all-powerful. Or even more literal, it would mean that God is all-sufficient. That is, he is able to bring about everything that he promises. He does not need anything else in order to bring them to completion. If he promised, it will occur. In the text today, the focus was on something which was altogether impossible to occur with nature alone. That is, Sarah conceiving and having a son. As it is, Sarah is simply too old in order to have a child, something which we were reminded with even last week. Yet now she hears of it and even shows her disbelief, because as it is, it seems impossible. Again, what is impossible for the world? For the created order in its natural course is not impossible for God. The reason for this is that God is supernatural. He is beyond nature itself. As such, he is not subject to the laws of nature, but instead is the law giver. And when he decides to act in the world, then a supernatural event occurs. So it is, Sarah and Abraham are about to experience a supernatural event. They are going to experience God working within Sarah and Abraham in order for them to produce this new offspring, Isaac. Indeed, just as Abraham previously laughed and named Isaac in that moment, so it is with Sarah. She too laughs, declaring his name before he even comes into the world. Now, before we say anything too great about this, we want to be careful. The text does not say that nothing is impossible for God. It simply says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, what, we, what do we need to be careful about with this? Well, if we say that nothing is impossible for God then we make an illogical statement. Um, We know it is impossible for God to do something against his will or to go against what we know about his personhood. It would be impossible for God to be unjust or to be immoral, to be not good, because we know his character, and to go against his character would not make any sense. We know this because God has revealed himself to us. And in that revelation, we know that God would not go against himself. So what do we say about this? We are reminded that in this context, God is speaking about the created order. He is able to show his power, his knowledge, and his wisdom. He is able to step in and do things within this order. We saw this most severely in regards to the flood. How God brought about the flood to cleanse the world, so to speak, from evil. But God is not only capable in regards to the destruction, but also in the blessing. We see this when he blesses humanity with progeny. We see this when he creates rather than destroys. We see this when he sets parameters of the earth and the universe and governs it through his wisdom. In all of these areas, we see a God who blesses us with his knowledge, wisdom, and power. So when it comes to being blessed by God, we can be sure that he is entirely capable of changing circumstances for our benefit and for his glory. He is entirely capable of healing us, providing for us, and making himself known in our circumstances. It isn't too hard for the Lord to do um, things like move mountains for us. He is strong enough. He is stronger than this world. Now, does that mean that he will always do this? No. 
There are times when illness comes, and there are times when sorrow comes, and when pain comes. This does not mean that God is not able. It simply means, as we saw last week, that God is able to use even our dark moments and turn them into beautiful light. In all honesty, I find that a truly miraculous thing. How God can take our deserts and make them into oases. How he can take us in our illnesses and then use it to bless others. In my own life, I have found this to be the case. When I consider about the loss which occurred a year ago, you know, some might wonder, can God be powerful enough to cause sorrow and turn it into good? I would say yes. I know this despite the many tears I cried. I know this because from that time I have a deeper sense of empathy for those who suffer. I have a closer relationship with Carissa because of it. Indeed, it forced me to draw closer to God in those moments of darkness to trust in him and say, blessed be the name of the Lord, even in these circumstances. Only because our God is able to turn our sorrow into good can this be the case. Only because of who God is can even the dark moments of our lives be turned into good. Because if what is good is drawing us closer to God, then even those moments can be turned into good. This doesn't mean we do not feel the pain, or the sorrow, or the loss. Instead, it reminds us that our God is empathetic. He, too, has felt loss. He did not give up his loss. Instead, he sent his son to redeem it and to redeem us. When we think of all the things that seem impossible for us to do on our own, do not give up on God. Instead, trust in him, knowing that he is completely sufficient to turn even the moments of struggles and hardships, pains and loss into good. Likewise, trust in him to bless. He is able to bless us, and he does bless us. Most significant of blessings is the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, who chases away the darkness and draws us into his marvelous light. Indeed, if we find our greatest of joys not in the circumstances, but in the one who gave his son, then even in the darkness we will rejoice, because we know the eternal light of Christ is with us if we have faith in him. You see, God has already done the impossible in our hearts. He has turned each one of us from a child of wrath, destined for destruction, into his own child. Shall we now begin to doubt what our God is capable of, knowing that our Savior has died and that he is raised into life? No. Let's rejoice in remembering God has already accomplished it. He has done it. Let's not begin to doubt him now. And so, naturally, this does lead us to the gospel. Because whenever you mention Jesus, the gospel should come to the forefront of our minds. Now, when it comes to the origins and how the gospel begins, um, yeah, it's not necessarily in this text. We don't quite see it. But it's still important to remind ourselves every week of the fact that you are made in the image of God, you are a created being, and that ultimately you have dignity, sanctity, and worth just as everyone else does around us. This is why we can be hospitable towards those who might not really like us all the time. Um, Because regardless, even if they are mean or hurtful, the truth is, is that in the end they're still made in the image of God. Now the problem comes with the fall. And that's because we are able to choose 
And in our freedom of choice, we often choose what is evil and wrong. That's why originally we are children of destruction. We're children of wrath. And the reason why we're children of wrath is because every time that we sin, it's reminding God and ourselves that we deserve judgment. We deserve death. We deserve to have our bodies crumble into dust. That's what we deserve. Every single sin requires that. And if you doubt me, go read Genesis 3. One sin is all it took in order for death to come. Just one. So even if you were to live a perfect life, except for the one time when you lied, or the one time when you kicked that dog, why would you kick a dog? That's just not even right. The dog deserved it. The point... I never, I've never kicked a dog. Anyway, the point is... The point is, though, is that sin happens, and we fall, and we fail, and we miss the mark repeatedly. So the question is, how do we escape that? How do we get out of being guilty and into being innocent again? And how do we allow our hearts to do that anyway? I mean, have you ever felt guilty over something? How do you feel unguilty? That's a hard thing. I mean, I live with guilt a lot sometimes, personally. Um, And so, like, how do we get to that point of feeling, you know, I am innocent again. I am not guilty. Well, there's nothing you and I can do about it. But there is something that God can do about it. What is impossible for those who are created in his image is possible for the one who is his image. And that is to bring redemption. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed if you have faith in him. And that should cause in our hearts and our minds to turn in repentance, turn away from the sin and the destruction that we have, and to continue to seek on, press on into the loving arms of our Father in heaven. That's possible, not because you or I are so strong. We are very, very weak. I'll be the first to admit it. But Christ is strong. He is powerful. He is the one from old. He is the one who promised, Sarah, you will have a child. He can do the impossible. And where does that lead? Well, for Sarah and for Abraham, it led to progeny. It led to the continuation of their name. It continued on into the people who are going to be God's people. For us, it leads to actually the same thing because we are God's people. Each one of us, if we're in Christ. And where do we lead? We lead to an eternal kingdom where life never ends. And where the joy of fellowship with our God without blinders on and without the veil is there. We're getting there. We're almost there, but we're not there yet. But that doesn't mean that we don't start now. We have to start now. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you also for the promises which you gave to those of old. So that we can read the promises and we can understand them and see, yes, God, he can fulfill his promises. And that God, you are El Shaddai the all-sufficient one, the one who is able to turn even our darkness into light, who is able to turn our hearts which are dead in sin into being alive in righteousness, the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. The impossible is not impossible to you when it comes to us. And so, Lord, we ask that we would seek out your will. We ask that you would continue to move and stir our hearts, our minds, and our bodies, and that we would continue to seek out your will and your glory. We thank you for all that you have done. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our.